0: All while saving businesses billions. That's Wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorthcom Wonder. You're listening to Intelligence Square Business Weekly. This week we're looking at the publishing industry with Zilla Bing Thorne, CEO of Future. Our host today is Jeremy Leslie, Creative Director of the site design consultancy and shop covering all things magazines, Mag Culture. He's also the mind behind the annual Mag Culture Live Conferences in London
1: and New York. Here's Jeremy with more. Producing a successful magazine involves a whole array of talent and skills, from the editors, writers, art directors and photographers who create the pages, to the sales team bringing in ad revenue and opening up new distribution channels. It's a hefty undertaking in an industry that, since the arrival of digital content platforms, has constantly had to think smarter about how to stay sustainable and remain relevant. Against that background, making just one magazine work creatively commercially is a tough undertaking. But now imagine being in charge of over 160 titles. That's the remit of my guest today, Zilla Bing Thorne. Zilla is Chief Executive of Future, now the UK's biggest magazine publishing group. Originally known for its specialist computer and gaming titles, Future has recently collected together many of the once big names of UK publishing. In 2019 it brought TI Media, formerly Time Inc, and before that IPC Media, and more recently they brought Dennis Publishing. These moves added the likes of Wallpaper, Country Life and The Week to its portfolio of titles. Not only this, but Future is now enjoying record pre-tax profits, with revenues up one-fifth in the. Last year. How has this been achieved? Well, we're here to talk about it and find out. So welcome to Intelligence Squared, Zilla. I've outlined a narrative of great success there in my introduction. I'm sure it doesn't feel that simple on the inside. How, how is it on the inside? What, how are you looking forward at the beginning of this new year? Yeah, it's
0: it's really nice, actually, to listen to someone else talk about your business and, and be reminded of of the journey we've been on. I was speaking to someone recently and saying that, you know, as you start 2022, I've got much more clarity about what I think the next 12 to 18 months hold than what I think the next 12 days holds. You know. I I think the continuing kind of near-term uncertainty that we face in, our, in all of our markets creates running a business a bit more of a challenge in the short term but longer term you know continuing the success that we've seen over the last you know five plus years in terms of bringing great content to audiences around the world is what we're looking to do so we're pretty excited about to excuse the pun what the future holds for future but we're very much focused on where we want to get to in the next couple of years as opposed to you know what we're doing for next week
1: so a positive state of mind very much so i'd like to set that part of the story to one side and look at your background and where you came from because you're not from a publishing background so I'm interested to sort of discover a little bit more about what your relationship and interest in magazines has been over the years before you joined Future. Yeah
0: it's, it's really funny because I, I don't think of myself as a media person at all despite running what is now the UK's biggest media business in terms of uh, content creation but just as you said that I was reminded that actually in my high school years I actually ran the school newspaper uh-huh. uh, so maybe, maybe it was in my DNA all, all along and I've come full circle but in terms of magazines I mean I, I've always Enjoyed the experience of leaning back and indulging in the written word. You know, I like to do sports, so Runner's World was always one that I used to love. It's not one that we own, which is regrettable, but nonetheless, it's one that I love. And then I've also always enjoyed the paper. You know, I'm a great believer in the newspaper. And my early mm-hmm. career was actually at Waterstones, so the printed word and, and books, it, you know, were certainly there. So kind of the real belief in, you know, if I go back 20 years ago, people would say, you know, there'll be no more hard copy books. It'll all be kindles and yet i don't know about you but i find myself with a kindle and a hard copy and an audible so i feel like i'm spending three times as much on books now rather than is half as much and i think magazines are the same i think it's a real indulgent experience but it's also an identification it's tribal it's you belong to a group and you identify with that and i think that's why magazines continue to have a role today i'll show my age here just 17 i think was the magazine i used to read I was at school and that was very much uh, the magazine of the day that we used to read and I, you can tell from the accent i'm from scotland and one of the sunday newspapers in scotland used to have a magazine within that as well that i used to used to enjoy that magazine part of the content um most and then having left school and sporting magazines were the ones that that i then kind of orientated more towards at that point and then we own it now but i I used to always enjoy women in home which seems like an older demographic but i I don't know something in my 30s -hmm. made that a magazine i wanted to read so there's definitely been some copy that i've really enjoyed and I think the big issue has been a really interesting magazine and social enterprise and it's actually really lovely now with one of the acquisitions we did last year that we are you know essentially the, the back office for the big issue and we do the advertising for them so that's, that feels quite nice as well in terms of coming full circle from that perspective
1: coming full circle to the now what's your day-to-day relationship to the magazines and teams that make up your business do you get to spend much time with the people actually making the magazines
0: yeah so Every magazine that we produce, I get a copy of sent to my house, so I think it's really important that if you're going to run a business, it's about content that you see the product and and you actually participate and and it's very easy with the move to online to not always look at the written copy as well. So one of the very first things I did was make sure that I get a copy every month of every magazine. I won't admit to reading them all because you just can't get through them all but the ability to just browse through them and, and get a feel for or, or see, see what stories are, are being picked up. I get a lot of contact from customers. You, as, a, as a chief exec you get a lot of feedback from customers and so I always find that that keeps it very real in terms of you know your ability to respond back and see what customers are saying. But the way we run our business we our magazines are integrated into the entire proposition. So we don't run a magazine division and then a digital division, which I know other media publishers do. So we would run a a women's division or a gaming division. And so consequently, magazines are the magazine part of the business is around everything we do. In fact, I was just writing this morning an email about you know how we get into the still best practice with the editorial teams. So I'm very much part of that, that part of the business.
1: When you first arrived at Future with obviously great experience on the business side of things, how did you define what an editor does and what a designer does and what the salesperson does? How did you learn? How did you dip yourself into it all?
0: It's a great question. And I'm smiling, although uh, listeners can't see me smiling because uh, I didn't know what publisher was i couldn't even articulate it i couldn't have told you what that was out loud and so i, I did that classic which was I decided we wouldn't have any more publishers we would we would call them managing directors instead so there's a little bit of arrogance when i look back um but but maybe it was the right thing because it moved the business on in terms of not being you know hung up on the old way of working i find myself increasingly kind of now thinking maybe we should have publishers back in the business because i understand more now exactly what that job involves But in those early days, I spent a lot of time talking to staff. Um, The business wasn't that big in terms of the size of the organization. So we did lots of kind of lunch and learns and breakout sessions, just finding out about, you know, what do people do? What is their job? The business was pretty much going bust when I I joined. So it needed a a complete, you know, reinvention. And the only way to do that is to listen to what people who actually work in the business think and, and to understand better what they do. And that was, I think, part of one of our our decisions to focus on the specialist content rather than focus on the distribution model, which I think is where a lot of publishers and and media companies have gone wrong, which is they get very attached to the distribution model as opposed to the audience that they're trying to reach. And what we did instead was put the audience at the heart of the journey and then be quite agnostic about how that audience wants to consume the content, be that, you know, periodically online or through an email.
1: Would you argue then from the point of view of coming at the business with little specific experience about this business, that was probably a benefit? Without
0: any doubt, because I, I just didn't know what I didn't know. So I was able to unashamedly ask really stupid questions, but allow us to then kind of revisit some of the you know sacred cows and also look at things through a different lens. And then I think that the business was definitely a burning platform and So people were like, well, actually any idea is better than continuing as we are. So I had the support of of the colleagues in terms of backing what we were trying to achieve because there was an absence of a strategy at that point in time. Does that make sense? As I said, smiling uh, to myself about was hindsight probably... I probably would maybe be a little bit less brash about some of the stuff I went around at the time. But, you know, time was of the essence and, and you know, there was definitely a burning platform. But it does make me laugh that I had no idea what publisher was. And, and if I'm honest, I still have these days where I think, what exactly is an editor? <laughs> you know, because I think, again, there's so many different nuances to what an editor does mm-hmm. and depending on what that looks like. So I still find myself checking that I really understand what people do.
1: From my point of view, coming from MagCulture, we specialise and celebrate a whole range of really quite small uh, magazine publishing companies that sometimes aren't even a business. They're kind of a work of passion, of, of just commitment, of self-publishing. For them, the whole point is their identity and their uniqueness and, and the, the, their their speciality. Now, of course, that kind of setup uh, it mirrors the kind of traditional route where, where every magazine has its star editor and, and they are the complete custodian of everything to do with that magazine. It's not just that they're interested in women's in, uh, interest; they're interested in their very particular market and their very particular slice of that market. How do you balance the two when you when you're sort of trying to go, go for the expert and the niche and be very exact, but then at the same time put the, all those women's magazines into one group? How how do you balance that off?
0: It's a really good question, and I think I think it's about it's about the balance. So and recognizing what is a need that you're trying to meet. So. In order to be successful commercially and fundamentally, unless you have a benefactor or most organizations need to have a commercial element to them. And I think, you know, when I joined Future, that's probably the thing that was missing. The content was was primary without recognizing the need to be commercial. In order to meet the commercial needs of the organization, you need to have scale. And so, but what we want to do is sell into endemic audiences. So we want to sell into gaming. We want to sell into the music. So you want to be within that industry known as the expert, but being able to reach Everyone in gaming or everyone in women's. And so when you're talking to um, games games publishers or you're talking to cosmetics manufacturers, you can reach the widest audience for them, but you can do it in a highly targeted way. So so operating as specialist verticals, which is how we do, allows us to maximize that opportunity from a commercial perspective. And so we talk about uh, content first and brand second, but we want to be a market leader in every brand that we have. So it's a slight pivot because most media companies as you say started off from a brand first and content second approach whereas our view is it's our job as the specialist in that vertical to maximize the ability to reach that audience so anyone who's interested in in women's fashion we want to reach them whether you're 80 or 18 we don't mind but we recognize the tone of voice is going to be different by different by different brand properties and so It was a real kind of light bulb moment for us about three or four years ago We're like, actually, we want to have more brands within these specialist areas rather than one big brand. And so the kind of the pivot had been previously, which was just be the biggest, was actually, no, there's a real beauty in being the biggest, but also having the niche within each of those where you really talk to the expertise that lights up the passion of someone who's really enthusiastic around a particular type of cycling, for example, but also having a mainstream cycling site or mainstream cycling brand as well. And then from an external perspective, what we found that enabled us to do was to say to advertisers and partners, we've got the most specialist audience, but we've also got the biggest audience. And so that became a point of differentiation for us. And then for colleagues, for the writers, um, we actually found that it created career paths. So some of the magazines were so specialist and so small, there was nowhere to go. Whereas if you create a, a wider community within the vertical, you know, you've know, you you've got an original interest in, for example, um, metal hammer you know in, in heavy metal but you maybe move on to a job in prog because you understand that part of the industry and you can make that progression so you can move across brands um and so it allowed us to kind of really optimize the talent pool as well from that perspective but i would say with some of the acquisitions we've done more recently there would, there's still been a couple of of the kind of more iconic traditional brands so we recently bought the week that certainly falls into that brand country life falls into that wallpaper falls into that style and I would say it's been one of the things that we've had to really work hard at at future which is how do we make sure we um properly respect those brands for in terms of what they provide without losing what we're trying to achieve in the wider vertical strategy and so we've had to kind of adapt some of how our ways of thinking in that regard as well.
1: Clearly, that's been a, a key part of the strategy is to grow and, and to grow all these groups into specialist areas and, and kind of own particular areas across across different markets. And you can measure that. I mean, you can measure that literally in 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 this in the scale that you've grown to in terms of 160 titles, in terms of the success of the value of the company has, has seen a huge growth in the last few years. And, and those are easy uh, matrices to understand and relate to your background in, in, in the broader business context. But it's the payoff between quality and quantity. You can measure quantity easily. How do you measure quality? I think
0: that the, the beauty of media is it's an art and a science. You know, there's a piece about being creative, which I think it's very hard to quantify. And when we talk to the editors about their strategy for each of their brands, oh. we and we we do, we're quite systemic about it. You know, we talk about how they allocate their time and, and in classic magazines, you'd have a flat plan and you'd lay out what you're going to put into it. It's not any different really online um what we talk about is there's a portion of time which is just about the magic of the product where i don't want to know how they how they spend their time we don't want to monitor it we don't want to track it it's about this is the essence of your brand so you as a team should just feel empowered to go and spend 15%, or 15% of your time doing whatever you think is going to be interesting um, and help move your brand forward and i think it's really important that when you are you know measuring the qualitative the quantitative measures that you do accept that some stuff just can't be measured, but you have to allow the space for the the creative to take place. So that's a a key part of it for us. But it's also a thing around, you know, as as I said, I was just writing an email this morning to the editorial team around, you know, sharing best practice, having peer reviews, peers looking at content and saying this is a great piece of content or this approach was a fantastic approach to how we covered this piece of news or cover reviews. And, And that's a really important part of celebrating success because i think peer recognition goes a long way also within the creative industry and so so we we work hard to try and make sure we keep that alive within the business and within the group um and so that that's a key measure there. the other thing and then obviously is customers you know the audience tells you if you if you're doing the right thing and you know we're very if we change the paper trim for example we quite quickly get feedback if it's if people think it's too too much but and I remember my days when I used to work in manufacturing people would say oh you've taken a rollo out the rollo stack you know so you know the customers know if you're if you're cutting quality too far and so I think it's also important to listen to what the audience tell you
1: pick up on the idea of reducing quality. If you look across the magazine industry as a whole, one of the critiques I would make of the, of the last sort of 20, 30 years has been an almost kind of self-destructive reduction in quality in an attempt to maintain the margin. Is that Would that be your view?
0: I'm not sure if I go as extreme as that, but I, th- I, think, it's, I think it's a challenge. And it comes back to the original position, which is you can't make something unless someone's prepared to pay for it, unless you have a benefactor. And so I think there's a harsh reality, which is particularly within distribution, retail is much harder than it used to be. So if your magazine isn't predominantly subscription led, getting the sale, getting it into the customers' hands, particularly in the UK, is really hard. And therefore, if you have supermarkets cutting space and news agents going out of business, that supply chain is shrinking. And and my belief where we started is is I do think people want to read magazines. I think it's harder for them to get magazines. And therefore that that's a key, a key challenge in that market. I do think there was certainly a period where the view was you can just cut your way to profit. I don't ascribe to that at all. I think you've got to be recognized that, we, you know, we've got to pass on some of the price increases to customers. But if the product's good enough, the customer should pay for it. Um, and I'd rather go down that route rather than have an inferior product um, masquerading as what it was before. As I was aligning to earlier, my earlier life in the chocolate industry, you know, when you started to put chocolate substitute into the product, you could taste the difference. You know, and I think the magazines are exactly the same. You know, we, we have to recognise that people are buying a product and it's got to live up to that promise. But I do think the bigger issue is actually distribution.
1: Do you have a, a simple figure in terms of the split between your print magazines uh, in, in terms of retail and, and subscription?
0: We're about 50-50 at the moment. Um, and that's been a strategic push for us. We Originally, when, we, when I joined the business, we were about 70% retail, 30% subscription. So we've been working really hard to grow that part of the mix. Um, and interestingly enough, seeing as we're doing a podcast, I'm a great believer that I actually think the future of magazines may well be in podcasting as well. And I think there's a very similar relationship with the audience in terms of it's very intimate, it's very targeted. You've made the decision you want to enjoy that rather than kind of, you know, I, I'm bored right now, entertain me for five five seconds, which is a, a lot of what online is around. And so my own personal view is if we can increasingly grow our subscribers, then maybe at some point in time, the magazine becomes a magazine and a podcast. And then over time, maybe the magazine becomes more of a secondary product in terms of the physical copy, but the content is provided as much through a podcast or an email, for example. So I think this ability to reinvent the consumption is really important, but recognising what
1: is the consumer doing at that point? That is a very familiar model to us in terms of the smaller independence. There's a lot of talk about kind of ecosystems of, you know, there's a group of channels. uh, The magazine remains key, but that's not necessarily the main economic driver. Yeah. But the podcasts, events, other things that you know, I think magazines have always done other things, but there are more more other things they can do now.
0: Yeah, I think so. And and I think the the subtle sort of probably difference for us is our model just now is to do more things around the original content, which is what leads on to the online business, which we were, you know, we've been hugely successful. But actually on this subscription, I I'm a great I'm a great believer that over the next five years you won't necessarily know if you're subscribing to the magazine or the podcast, you'll subscribe to a community, you know, this is what I'm interested in. I want to be part of this. Um, And I think the value exchange will probably change over time, depending on who you are. And as the retail environment continues to be as challenging as it is, I don't see the high street getting any easier for distribution. Um, And therefore, I think we need to push harder on subscription. And it's interesting when you look at the European market, because that's a much more subscriber led proposition in terms of magazines and newspapers and they've largely been a bit more successful I think in prolonging the the profitability of that.
1: To take that, that that kind of five-year period looking ahead, I mean, what's the balance between kind of print and digital across the business? How many of them are pure digital and how many of them mix print and digital?
0: Roughly in terms of audience, it's, you know, completely overwhelmed by the digital side of the business. You know, we reach one in two in the UK and one in three in the US. So the audience is, is much, much more materially digital. In terms of revenue, splits, about a third magazines and two thirds online, if you're kind of being broad brush in that regard. Um, and then in terms of pure products, about we actually got just over 200 brands and about 40 are digital only and the rest are, are magazines. Um, but we don't, we, as I said before, we kind of don't run it as the brand drives the digital strategy. It's the content that drives the digital strategy, but the brand lives within this kind of vertical. So we all, we all create 11 specialist verticals. Um, from that perspective. And, and most verticals will have, you know, a half a dozen magazine brands, at least, within them. And I'm really bullish about the magazine industry and, you know, if, you know Future as a, as a business has has gone out on a limb on that. And we've gone long on magazines, which is ki- kind of counterintuitive in terms of what the narrative is, because I believe that it's a different experience from online. And I think that when people read a magazine, they are doing something different from when they are online, asking a question, specifically doing some research or... On the tube board and just want something to entertain them for a few minutes. Whereas you, the decision to buy a magazine is, I'm really interested. I really identify with this, and I actually want to have some time for me doing something that's important to me. And therefore, if you understand generally these differences in the audience needs, then you wouldn't believe that the death of the magazine is going to happen because you know they're they're meeting. I don't I don't think there's something that suppl- supplants that for uh, the consumer. But I do think that's where podcasting, for example, comes in because you could supplant that time with listening to a podcast instead, for example. And so I do think that's where that opportunity comes in. I, I do think some magazines, um, where you're really niche, um, then I think it's you're gonna struggle to survive, you know. And I, I would say probably on average every year we probably close five. You know, uh, magazines, it's probably a, 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 that kind of number. But I mean, I've got one magazine that sells 600 copies. You know, I mean, we've got some really small magazines in their portfolio. So unless there's a strong advertising base to support that, then, you know, it, it's hard to keep something so- long-term commercially.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a very extreme example, 600 copies. From what you're saying, that is still published. Is the reason you're still publishing that because the the magazine is still perceived as being so central to the project that if you were to suddenly cut it off, say next month, that it would dent the digital side?
0: No, not at all. Every single brand that we have has to be profitable in its own right, um, or at least have a pathway to profitability. I think we all work too hard to do stuff that loses money. But I think that in that particular instance, that brand has got huge support from its advertisers because the individuals that reach that brand are really specialist. And so it's the only way to find those people um, and be really targeted. And So the, so because the advertiser support continues, the magazine continues to be profitable for us, it's, it's, it's tiny in the context of the group. But, you know, we're happy to have the contribution. And I think that's one of the nice things about being a large business but still relishing the benefit of the specialism, you know. So with any... Within each individual vertical, we can still have really small brands and also have brands which are making, you know, seven figure contributions. It's not a one is better than the other. It's the, it's the point about meeting the audience's needs.
1: And to broaden it again, as you look out across the new year and, and the general magazine business, how do you see your competitors? Who are your competitors? Are there any left?
0: <laughs> yeah, certainly in the UK, it's getting smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I think I think we don't tend to think of ourselves as competing with magazine companies. I think we we see ourselves competing with other me- other media businesses, um, and probably more of our attention is given to the US these days because the audience is you know five times the size of the UK. So we think more about some of the. Um, the competition is there. The The recent acquisition by IEC in the US of Meredith, I think, is really interesting. And we've spent a lot of time looking at that. Uh, it's not dissimilar to the acquisition that we did of, of TI Media. Effectively, TI was the UK arm of the Meredith business. And so that's a business that we look at and we spend a lot of time thinking about what they're doing and can we take any lessons from them in terms of their approach. But then at the same time, you look at something like The New Scientist, you think that was a fantastically well-run magazine a great pivot and can you learn things from that so it doesn't always need to be the biggest that you're looking at it's about being open to ideas i think the new york times is really interesting in terms of their strategy um uh, and i really admire what what they've been doing in the recent acquisition of the the athletic was quite an interesting move for them there i mean i'm not sure i'd have paid what they paid for it um especially considering it still has the losses that it has but it certainly goes back to that point about valuing a subscriber and the ongoing uh, value of of specialist subscription. So, as far as it reinforces the point around, you've got to have a relationship, a direct relationship with the purchaser of your content, um, which allows you then to build out more products or more services to them as
1: required. So to, to, to pick up on, on, on the structural part of all this, so that you, I mean, especially at the moment when we're still going through the COVID situation, the businesses must be very kind of spread out and disparate and very distributed across the country in terms of pe- a lot of people working from home. You talked about how people can learn from each other and how they can mix and, 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 and match, if you like. But in this current circumstance, how do you make that happen?
0: One of the things about uh, the future culture that we work really hard at is that is a sense of one one future. And I think it's particularly pertinent when you run brands because people sometimes feel like they work for their brand rather than they work for future. And what was really important for us is to make sure people understand why they work for future as well as working for their brand. They have to want to be part of our organization as well as working on that content. And so what that means is we integrate fully. So we try to have a real integrated model where you know we've got these verticals, um it's a common technology platform, it's a common production team, it's common CMSs, So all the tools we use are the same, which also lets it easier for people to move around. But also we have a, a weekly snapshot where it's it's self-curated. People put in content they want to talk about, but it lets everyone showcase their work to the entire organization. So that, that's a really nice piece of thing to do. But it also lets you to talk about charity work you're doing or or anything like that. I do a weekly email to all the staff about things that are on my mind. So, you know, at the start of this week I sent my email to the staff saying, you know, New Year's resolutions, I want to lose some weight and I want to get fit again, amongst many other things, you know, about, you know, I hope we get back to being in offices together. I hope we get back to collaboration because I really do believe that's really important, particularly creatively. So we have a a real clear cadence of communication, but we spend a lot of time making sure that people feel part of one organisation, and um, so that so you can be tribal within that, but you recognise you're part of a bigger group, and, and that's really
1: important to us. In my introduction, I referred to the kind of the creative side of the business and the commercial side of the business, and there's always been a slight friction between these two traditionally in publishing, uh, even if it's less so now. I, I feel. Nonetheless, when you're consolidating all all, all all these different kind of projects and magazines and brands, the definitive part of them are the are the creative teams, um, and 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 they can learn and they can they can develop into across brands and as you say. But if you're going to look forward and you know, the obvious way to kind of continue to uh, in, increase the income is, is is to cut some jobs at some point. I mean, is that kind of um, consolidating the back room, the commercial side?
0: Yeah. So I think no one decides that what they want to do for a living is make people lose their jobs, right? I, n- I never wake up in the morning thinking that's what I want to do. And I think the day that you no longer feel the personal pain of having to have that conversation with someone is the day you should probably resign and, and retire because you you've stopped you've lost your humanity. Um so I work really hard in within the organization to minimize that. But it is a reality that that happens, particularly when you're acquiring businesses because Oftentimes we don't need duplicate roles and, and that is one of the consequences of that. But one of the reasons why we've operated this vertical structure from a creative perspective is it allows the writers to have a career path. We use the same systems. We use the CMSs across the multiple brands, online and on the print copy. There's a lot of content sharing, same CMS again. And so people can move through the organization and therefore when a, maybe a magazine has to start to kind of constrict the size of its its headcount or is, you know, and ending towards the, the beginning of the, of the end of its life, then those staff can start to look at other, other roles within the organization. We can move them around. So so I'm very pleased to say that, you know, apart from the very beginning, when I, when I first joined the business, we've not had to undertake a lot of restructuring of because of costs. We have had to do some stuff because of acquisitions where you've got duplicate roles. But the model we try to build is try, tries to avoid that as much as possible. And, you know, certainly personally, I, I would probably say as the new organization, I'm the one that you know, last man standing, you know, I, I don't want to make anyone redundant. I mean, I just don't want to do it. And I remember having a massive row about Xmox magazine about three years ago where I was like, everyone was busy talking about the online property. And I was like, if you don't love this magazine better, it will end up getting closed because you know, at the end of the day, we can't run something which doesn't make any money. And, and I, I hate to say it, but I think I lost my temper about it. I was like, you're not spending enough time on the stuff that on, these are people's jobs. It's a livelihood, you know, come on, we've got to care. And I think you've got to feel that about your business um, and the inevitable tough decisions do need to get made. But at least I know I go to bed knowing, we did everything we could before we made that decision. And I think that's the important part of it.
1: So we talked about the last five years. You know, one of the problems of such success is 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 everyone's looking and thinking, well, how are you going to maintain that success? Can we?" You know, everyone's got that graph going up. They just assume it's going to go up, up, up. What's the plan?
0: <laughs> I, I certainly have had that question asked of me almost every year since I joined. You know, can you keep on like this? I, what I think the first thing is we never take it for granted. And it comes back to some of the things we talked about, which is the quality of your product. Are you meeting the customers' needs? Are you doing what the audience want? Are you thinking about what's the next right thing for this audience? How do I do the next thing that might be helpful to them? And so long as you're always asking yourself that question, then you should be confident you can deliver then ultimately more revenue growth and more audience growth. And so we recently stated our ambition to move from one in three people in America online to one in two. We really want to grow our grow our audience share in the US. And I've got every confidence that we can do that. At through continuing to execute on the strategy we have. So I, de- I definitely see that that success continuing. But I think one of the, one of the benefits of being larger, and, and we're very privileged in this respect, is we suddenly get to start thinking about how we can make a contribution as well. You know, when you're very small, sometimes it's just about survival. And what I said to the organization is the more successful we are, the more we have the freedom to choose what we want to do. And that is such a privilege. And one of the things we were really proud to announce last year was our uh, – evolution of our esg strategy particularly around helping to create a safer internet you know content that actually is accountable that is fact-checked that is stuff that you'd want your kids to read if they accidentally run across it that we have a responsibility as a large online publisher these days to ensure that we we play a role in that and so that's something we're working on this year just now another part of it is placed our expert content is helping support lifelong learning and actually being in a position as an organization to invest money into how can we help lifelong learning? Because not everyone learns academically and magazines, to some extent, often are about helping people learn things that matter to them. But how can we make learning more fun? How we can make learning later in life? And how can we play to that? So so our scale gives us a chance to do more than just deliver returns to the shareholders. It actualizes I feel, to deliver something back into the communities
1: that we serve. Uh, in that spirit, I have one last question. You are chief executive of one of the biggest publishing companies in this country with international reach, et cetera. What would you say, having worked five years there, getting involved in the, in, in the intricacies of running publishing as a business, whether it's digital and print, whether it's an ecosystem, podcasting, all the various other elements and channels, what would you say to someone who's running a either three people, it's a small magazine that comes out twice a year, they love doing it, but what advice would you, have to them to try and develop it into a more sustainable business. I
0: think one of the things you said there is is critical, which I think you've got to love what you do, especially when you're in that sort of size of of an operation, you've got a real passion for that product. Um, But I think it comes back to that point about sometimes we have to make sure that we're creating the content our audience wants and not the content that we want. Um, And one of the things certainly I experienced in the early days at Future was sometimes we were writing for ourselves. Rather than for our readership. And so I think staying true to is this actually what my audience wants to consume? Is this what's relevant today? Because if you answer that question, then you will be successful commercially because someone someone will pay for you, pay for that, either the audience himself or an advertiser who wants to be around it. But it does require quite a bit of discipline when you're specialist to make sure that you are really staying true to what is the the most useful thing for that audience as opposed to what your own personal passion is
1: thank you zilla that was zilla bing thorne chief executive of future you've been listening to intelligence squared business weekly i'm jeremy leslie thank you for listening